says change keys right here. Yeah. yeah. So you have two modes happening where you've got the major Testing one, two. Is number three? 
Okay.
Good morning. You ready for summer? It's all of a sudden summer. Felt it this morning. Ready or not? That's exactly right. <laughs> Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3.18. Studies in the Confession taught by Jared. Uh, we just cracked the book this morning, so it's going to be great. Come on out and be with us 9.30 right here. Tonight we begin the summer video series on the history of the Reformation. So if you have wondered about that, um, come on out and be with us at 6 o'clock. Bring finger foods. How are we doing on sodas? Anybody know? Okay. We can always use soda as well. So bring finger foods and we could use some soda. Baby bottle drive. Are you half full? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on your point of view. Get that thing filled up and uh, next Sunday bring it, it back. Necessary, it doesn't necessarily have to be back on Father's okay. Day, but we'd like you to fill them. So okay. Them, okay. Rather have it full than on time. Got it. <laughs> All right. So uh, ideally full and on time. But, so don't forget. Choir is done for the summer. Men's Bible study Tuesday at 10 at the McLeod Home. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Family conference 22nd through 24th in Hartville. Two weeks. So, uh, church directory again. That's uh, kind of ongoing. And uh, you see an address there for Diane Sogel if you want to drop her a note. Anything else? Scripture for meditation this morning, James, the second chapter, read 14 through 26.
Let's stand together and open with a ask God to bless our service. <coughs> Dale, can I ask you this morning? Sure. Our God and our Father, how thankful we are for this day and you, you brought us out to your house to, to hear your word preached. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his work that he did at the cross. Um, we would ask that you be with our pastor Three hundred and five in the brown hymnal. Three zero five.
Lydia. <laughs> the reason I'll go with Lydia is because she was last week and didn't have the right number. I believe she has the right number this week. Forty-two in the brown. Okay. So second time's the charm. Forty-two in the brown. What I think is so nice, though, is that so many hands go up before we even sit in the pews. Keep that up. Okay. There are sometimes I ask for a hymn and nobody's got their hand up. Having a cue is good. I'll get to you. Just keep coming. Okay. Forty-two. Seek you first. Is it, are there more verses in the purple? There's one more? Okay, all right. Well, maybe next time we'll sing it out of the purple. But the descant was also nice to hear. Thank you. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 24. from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. 
And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. May the Lord add his blessing to this holy and inspired word. Three hundred and seventy-two in the brown. Three
be seated. Our scripture text this morning is John, 1 John chapter 3. Got to visit with uh, Diane the other day, and um, she has another week to go at least on chemo and what they're doing with the stem cells, so continue to pray for her. If she does well, if the stem cells respond to um, the stimulants that they're giving her, then hopefully she will be able to come home Friday. That's this week. And that's like a week sooner than expected. But she's going to need help, and I think some of the ladies have already been contacted because she needs to be supervised. And then... Um, she has to go down to Detroit periodically to uh, get more medi medications and monitoring done. So continue to pray for uh, Diane. Well, last week we considered the Apostle John's charge to us to love one another. It's an old command dating to the time of Jesus' own earthly ministry in which he, as the Lord of his people, declared, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So it's clear that Jesus wants us to live our lives in such a way as to be different. And he intends the difference to be seen by the world and to become a drawing card to cause people to focus on why we are different. Namely, because we are right with God through the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. So it isn't different for difference's sake. It isn't different to be thought odd, peculiar, funny, strange, but different in the sense of being like Christ and not like the rest of humanity which is consumed with hate. Boy, don't we see a lot of that on TV. You as a believer are the paintbrush which colors people's perceptions of God. What do you paint with your mouth? What do you paint with your actions, your life? God wants you to paint this extraordinary love of the brethren which is so selfless, so other-oriented as to amaze and astound the world. A world consumed by anger, hatred, resentment, retaliation, it longs for genuine love that does not criticize, condemn, or censor. Will they find it in this church? Will they find it in you? Will they find it in me? How do we go about loving as Christ loved? That is our subject today. And as we come to it, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. 
Holy Father, send your Holy Spirit that he might be our teacher this day and show us <clears throat> how to be practical in our Christian love for one another. Whether we like it or not, the world is watching us. And they would be ready to pounce on any lack of genuine love, to criticize our profession, to call us hypocrites, and on and on it goes. But I pray that we won't have hypocrisy, that we will genuinely love one another and be willing to demonstrate that through our speech and through our actions. Help us to rise above ourselves, our own sinful natures, and to be able to look into the face of Christ and say, Lord, that's what I want to be. I want to be like you. I want to have a genuine love for other sinners like myself. I pray that you will help us. Help us not to be censorious, but to be compassionate. And with the whole result that we will give an honest and faithful picture of the love of Christ. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. We're looking at the scriptures this morning from 1 John 3, and we're going to study the practical practicality of Christian love. What can we say about Christian love? Well, firstly, John tells us that genuine Christian love acts, A-C-T-S. It acts. It does things. Look at verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because, why, we love our brothers. This is a tried and true benchmark which we can apply to our own lives like a measuring tape by which we measure things. Christian people are born anew, they're born of God, and as such we have the love of Christ within us by His Spirit. And so by loving as Christ did... His Spirit teaches us to be subtle, but to be real in our confirmation that we have passed from death to life, and we show that we have done so by our love. This is a very helpful text. If I love the brethren of Christ, as Christ did, there is the assurance that I too am alive in Christ and possess his nature in this regard. And I, I think that confirmations are very important because we're all prone to self-deception. You can convince yourself that all is well with your soul without too much hard work. What we generally use as confirmation of faith is our affirmations, our knowledge of Bible truth, put to God words to show everyone that we know what it means to be saved and to be a part of the community of Christ. For example, we have been taught that a Christian is one who believes in Jesus and has accepted him as Lord and Savior. And so we have little trouble saying, you know, on November 5th, 2009, I was in church and the pastor preached on John 3.16 and I gave my heart to Christ that day. That's affirmation. Or we say things like, God forgave me all my sins. 
Or we say, I'm not the same person I was 15 years ago. These are all affirmations of faith based on what we have been taught and know to be essential elements of the gospel and of conversion. And the statements may be quite true. But here's the thing, they may also be false. The reason this is so, because we have an enemy of our souls who loves to play tricks on us. He loves to blind us and let us think we see. He loves to stop up our ears and make us swear that we heard. He's willing to grant us the idea that we have believed, yet knows all along that our faith is bogus and our repentance of sin is a sham. This is why self-examination is not only necessary, but prudent. Paul told the Corinthian church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. I'll come back to this in a moment to see why he would tell them this, but for now, just note that Paul is saying to the Corinthian church and to us, don't take your salvation for granted. Test it to see if it's genuine, if it's real. But why? Because you could fail the test. Then what? And it is because affirmations can be made by anyone because the enemy of our soul uses knowledge and articulation to disguise spiritual deadness, that the biblical authors use a different criteria for judging genuineness in the faith. What do they use? Well, they use actions, not just words. Behavior, not speeches. Activity, not just affirmation. We note in our text that John does not say, if you love someone, be sure to tell them so. Let me say, the world, the world knows that much, doesn't it? I would say the world does that much. Some of the dramas on TV will show a person maybe boarding a plane, going to go on a long trip, and another person standing by the wayside. And the person boarding the plane will turn and say, well, before I go, I just want you to know that I love you. And then off they go. They did not want to leave that person on the tarmac without affirming their love. And I'm, There's nothing wrong with that, and I think we need to do more of that. We need to actually say the words, you know I love you, you know I care for you. That has to be done. But I am saying that knowing the deception of the evil one and the selfishness of the heart, the biblical authors use a more demanding criteria to substantiate love. They command, love one another, verse 11. But they do not say, go tell your brother or your sister in the faith that you love them. Instead they say, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. In other words, Christian love acts 
It doesn't just affirm. It loves as Christ loved. In our colloquialism of the day, we, we would say something like this. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we see genuine contact between moving forward. Now, secondly... Christ is the model of Christian love. So we're not just going to define love as we want it. We're going to use Christ as the model because we're to love as he does. What do we note? Noted in your bulletin outline that Christ-like love is sacrificial. Look at verse 16. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. and We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Wow, our lives for our brothers. How powerful those five words are. There is, of course, the figurative interpretation of this text, which some have emphasized, saying, well, you know, John is not really talking about forfeiting one's life for another. He's just using this as a metaphor to illustrate a willingness to put oneself out on behalf of the brethren. Okay, then since this is connected to Christ, let's see how this would play out. Christ was willing to lay down his life for us, and we ought to be willing to do the same for our brothers. This still sounds acceptable to us because we're always substituting the word willing for the action. Don't we talk this way all the time? Would you be willing to teach a junior class of boys and girls in the Bible school on Sunday? Sounds less demanding. Seems to give more wiggle room than will you teach a junior class on Sunday? Leadership is so used to being turned down by people saying no <laughs> that it uses more conciliatory words like, would you be willing to? If all we meant by the word willing was if the occasion arises, would you, then it might be acceptable to couch a request in this format. Uh, we do not have a, a junior age students in our Bible school as yet, but if we get the students, would you be willing to teach the class? That's a good use of the word willing. It's appropriate because it's supposition. The reality is not here yet, but it may come. And if it does come, would you be, would you be willing to teach? Is this the same with John's statement about Christ? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Was there anything hypothetical about the sacrifice of Christ? Would any biblical author write, if a sacrificial offering were necessary for sinners to be forgiven of God, Christ would have been willing to step in and lay down his life for his brothers. Do biblical authors talk that way? 
<laughs> Absolutely not. Let me give you some. Verse 16. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 2. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The writer of Hebrews chapter 7:27 compares Jesus and his sacrifice with the Old Testament priest saying, "Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself." Hebrews 9 verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Peter writing of Jesus says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. The believers in the Revelation are pictured singing a new song, and this is what they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5, verse 9. Now when we read these scriptures, none of these scriptures are hypothetical. They are all biographical. Jesus actually did lay down his life for his brothers. And John calls us to do the same. Verse 18, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Well, the question comes, how do we love sacrificially? Well, we could lay down our lives, literally, if the occasion called for it. Some of the parts of the world today, Christians love their brethren, loving their brethren, are called to do this very thing. China, on January 26, 2007, a Christian, Hua Hudai is his name, and his 76-year-old mother were attacked and wounded by seven police officers while walking near a 2008 Olympic hotel in Beijing. According to the China Aid Association, the CAA, Hua and his, was an active house church member in Beijing. You know they don't have their church building sitting out in the open. They meet in houses and often, you know, in secret. He and his mother were kicked on the ground and later taken to the Olympic police station for questioning. When Hua asked the police to release his sick mother and to explain the legal grounds for their detention, he was beaten repeatedly. And while the temperature in Beijing was in the 20s, they threw cold water on him. He was later taken to a detention center where the China Aid Association said, Hua's family 
learned that he was sentenced to one month of criminal detention. And they wrote, Brother Hua is a faithful Christian seeking only to serve the Lord in accordance with his conscience, said Todd Nettleson of the Voice of the Martyrs. The Christian government, excuse me, the Chinese government says they ensure freedom of religion. But this case clearly shows the truth. And so we urged Chinese leaders in Beijing to release our Christian brother immediately. Laying down your life for the faith. Taking a beating for Christ. Pakistan, November 15, 2006. Jazad and Saraj Bashir, 18 and age 20, respectively, brothers, escaped bondage and torture at the hands of their brick kiln owner. Shazad and Sarat told Voice of Martyrs, workers in Pakistan, the brick kiln owner had kidnapped them and kept them in a secret location where they were tortured and beaten in an attempt to force them to convert from Christianity to Islam. When Shazad and Saraj refused to convert, the brick kiln owner took them away. He put them in a small empty room with a mud floor, without a bed, no chair, no mattress. He kept them there for a month, and he gave them food just once a day and beat them with a stick when they refused to convert back to Islam. He also threw acid on their arms, but they remained true to their faith said the voice of the martyrs that knew them. When Shazad's family started working on the kiln, they were paid between 200 and 300 rupees for 1,000 bricks. After a month, the owner stopped paying them completely, but instead told Shahad's family they owed him 40,000, 45,000 rupees. That's about $744. What angered the brick kiln owner more were the prayer meetings conducted by Pastor Emmanuel at their house. Christians attended the prayer meetings. They refused to convert to Islam, the workers said. Throughout Shasad's and Sarjad's captivity, they prayed daily and asked God, to rescue them, and he did. On November 15th, when they discovered the door was left open, unlocked, they bowed before God and thanked him for the miracle and then escaped. The brothers ran for eight days without food until they reunited, reunited with their family. Brethren, these accounts are a reminder to us that the freedom of religion we American Christians enjoy is not the norm, but the exception in our world. People are laying their life on the line as a testimony of the gospel and in support of their house churches and ministers. So we could lay our life down physically, and it may come to that in America. In case you haven't noticed from the news, things are getting very hostile towards Christians. Bernie Sanders just criticized a guy running for office because he's a Christian. 
Well, we could also lay down our lives for one another in different ways. We could put the knife to our own self-centeredness. Paul says we are who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Romans 15, first three verses. We could forego our wants, our wishes, our goals, sacrificing them to others. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether there are Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and following. Again, we could suffer for Christ instead of being ashamed of him and silent about him. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're, you're, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. <laughs> for it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and following. What's he saying? Commit to Christ, continue to do good, Take the licks that come your way for the gospel. Continue to love your brethren. Christ-like love is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Secondly, Christ-like love is observant and is generous. Look at verse 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees, see he's observant, he sees his brother in need. Okay. But has no pity on him. How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. What's he saying? Don't just tell someone in need that you love them. Do something to prove it. Part with some of your stuff. To meet the needs of others. Sometimes we become embroiled in our own minds as to how to how a person uh, came to be in financial state of deprivation. 
And this idea to speculation is on our part. Well, I'll bet he or she is a spendthrift and squandered their money. Or he or she is not a very good manager of money. Or again, maybe he or she is lazy or indifferent. I'll bet their work ethic must be poor. And on and on we go. Now, some of this may be true, but which one of us has not made stupid financial decisions and then had to live with them until God and his providence rescued us? I'll have a little confession here. Back when we were living in Pennsylvania, there was this group that was selling men's suits to pastors. You could buy five suits. I forget, I forget the price, but it was astonishingly cheap. All you had to do is sign up, pay out your money, and the suit factory would go to work making a suit that was tailored for you. So I did it. I thought, yes, this wow, this is a great price for suits. I'm, I'm getting five suits, and I need suits in the ministry, and so I signed up. One month went by. Two months went by, three months went by. I'm phoning this guy. Hey, where's the suits? Where's the suits? Well, uh, we're running into a little bit of a problem. Yeah, well, where's the suits? After mon many months, no suits. Okay, so I said, well, okay, I understand. Just refund me my money. Oh, uh, well, we spent all the money. Oh, you did? How did you spend all the money and I have no suits? Well, you know, there was uh, the ongoing cost of setting up the business. So we had to rent a place that had sewing machines. We had to hire seamstresses and so on. Short and long of it, I never got so much as one thread. Not one thread. Well... I'd like to say that that was the most stupid thing I ever did financially, but it's not. Uh, so if I were in need and I didn't have clothes for my kids or food for the table, I wouldn't want some Christian church or brethren say, well, you know, Fred, you really blew it on the suits or you blew it on this and that. So I hate to say it, but you can just fend for yourself. And if your kids are hungry... The Lord bless you. I want you to think about that. Speaking of Christ, as he dispenses his blessings, his help to us based upon our right decisions. Does he not come to us in our sin? Does he not pull us up out of the mire that we have dug for ourselves? And has not Jesus done this for us multiple times over the same sin issues? We read in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is kind. It's not self-seeking. Oh, the next phrase. It keeps no records of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Truth is, the issue in our text, verse 18 and 19, what does it say there? 
There's no fear in love. Oh, I got the wrong text. Wait a minute. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Hmm. John says, you have material possessions, verse 17. And you observe that a fellow brother or sister in the faith is in need. That's his words. Two truths you have, he doesn't have. You have more than enough. He is deprived. He needs compassionate help. You have the means to do so. These are all the facts. That's the truth. We are not to concern ourselves with all of the possible mitigating circumstances of how this brother got himself in all this trouble. Just help the guy. Help the person out of love for somebody in the family of God. No. A second and most convicting truth is this, that love is a matter of faith in God. You and I probably wouldn't have attached it that way. But the apostles do. James' text, which we read as our meditation reading, gives this pointed exhortation. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. James 2, 14 through 17. Here again, the biblical author postulates a very real scenario. A believer doesn't have clothes enough on his back. He doesn't have food enough for his stomach. And a fellow believer is what? He is pronouncing benedictions. Go, I wish you well, keep warm, be well fed. Pater celestes indulgio mea frater, religicum bonum, heavenly father, grant my brother good things. Benedictions have no place in the presence of real need when you have the means to bring relief. You may have heard the erroneous teaching that faith looks to God to do the supplying of all needs, but the biblical position is that faith works. 
in the true-hearted believer with deeds of love and compassion. In other words, God does his work in us, through us, to help others. The biggest, the best, the most successful rescue workers and distributors of aid in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina that devastated Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi was not, let me say it again, was not the American Red Cross. Say, so how do you know that? Because the churches of the South, who went into, they were the ones that went into the floodlands to rescue and aid people with food and clothing and medications and so on. And they continued to do so for years, long after the Red Cross had packed its bags and gone home. The churches rose to the occasion. And that's being like Christ. There's some pretty poorly equipped people that appealed to Christ in his ministry. Either they were sick and standing along the road. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. They were beggars at the temple gate. When Jesus saw them, he ministered to them. The Christian ethic of care in these churches of the South and others finds its root in the biblical histories. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, tells of a collection of money being taken by the churches of Greece for the persecuted and suffering saints in Jerusalem. Why were they being persecuted and suffering? Because the Jewish religion and the hierarchy were punishing and inflicting persecution upon them. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial. Macedonian churches now. Their poverty welled up in rich generosity. No, no, that's not the way it reads. It says, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they didn't do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Yeah, to the Lord who said to all of us, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now here's my question. Why would Paul write about the Macedonian churches when writing to the Corinthian church? He tells us why he writes. I want to test the sincerity of what? Your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Whoa. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We like to quote that verse, but do you know the context? He's talking about the suffering saints in Jerusalem. Now why is he questioning the sincerity 
of the love of this Corinthian church. Verse 10, he tells us, Last year, you were the first, not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Oh, good. Oh, wonderful. Oh, uh, next phrase, not so wonderful. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. He's not asking them to bankrupt themselves. He's not asking them to do anything like that. He's just saying, you know, a year ago you were the ones that said, oh, we need to help those poor people down there in Jerusalem that are under persecution. I think it would be a good idea if we, um, if we took an offering for them. And then they didn't do it. Paul says, you know, you need to complete your desire. Desire to help is not so important as actually helping. You know that, I hope. You see, Corinth, unlike the Macedonian churches, was wealthy. This was a wealthy church. They had money to burn, but they were just talkers. The Macedonian churches were impoverished, but they collected a considerable sum of money to aid the distressed in Jerusalem. This is loving the brethren as it should be. The Corinthians were dragging their feet, making excuses, when all along the means to help was there. Christ-like love is observant. It sees his brother in need, we read in our text. It's observant, but it's also generous. It rises to the occasion and helps whenever possible. Verse 19, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Why, why, why should our hearts condemn us? Because we made a commitment to be supportive of God's ministers and God's missionaries and God's family and God's work through our church, and then we renege on our promises. Solomon warns about this. He says, make, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. God has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger, Oh, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore stand in awe of God. Well, that's really good advice considering the day in which we live where everybody wants to just say with affirmations, I love God, I serve God, I'm doing this for God. Easy words, not so easy actions. The principle here is what Jesus told his disciples 
who were concerned for their personal food and clothing and so on, what, what, what did he say to them? He said this, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, verse 33. There is not an excuse for laziness or indolence or foreplanning or apathy. No, the, we work, we work. And like Paul, we earn our keep. But through it all, we do not rob God and his work to pay our own way to our toys and our dreams. We do not close our hearts of love to those about us who are in need. Christian care is a matter of sacrifice at times, and it's always to be generous, generous love. And James adds, it's a matter of faith because Jesus models both and his spirit empowers us. So my two questions, do you have faith in God? If you have faith in God, it's going to be followed by actions, not just affirmations. Second question, do you love the brethren? When's the last time you laid down your life for the brotherhood? When you put aside something you really wanted to do, maybe financially, for yourself, I deserve my new And you do that for Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. And it's, it, it's like, a, oh boy, is it a sharp sword or what? It cuts us. It convicts us. We may be no better than the people John addressed in this epistle and the ones James addressed when it came to their faith. I pray that you'll help us. Forgive us where we have looked and saw, turned our back, did nothing. Or we looked and saw a brother in need and we said, Ah, the Lord bless you. Or, well, I'll be praying for you. And we ought to pray for one another. That's a given. But couldn't we do something to maybe alleviate the problem? Can't we look beyond benedictions and affirmations please lord make us responsible christians and it's that love that the world sees needs to see as a calling card to come to christ those christians wow see how they love one another that was the watchword of the new testament days may we regain it in Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from 363 in the hymnal. 363. I chose this hymn because... It's really about loving Christ. What we do for one another is about us loving Christ. And so that's why the hymn writer talks about more love to thee. And he's addressing Christ in all of this. Let's stand together as we sing.
Jesus taught his disciples, if you love me, I'm going to keep my commandments. Well, we just looked at some of his commandments this morning, so take it to heart. Now tonight, we start our video series for the summer, and it's called Amazing Grace. It's not about the song, per se, but it's about God's grace in bringing the gospel of salvation to our world. And it deals with the Reformation and how that came about and how the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone overrode the Pelagian heresies of Arminianism and came to be the position of the church, not just in one council, but in multiple councils, as the church fought against the heresies of the day. This will be good for us, not only to learn the history, but to see that, well, we just might be in the same kind of battle right now against the wiles of the devil as he, again, attacks the doctrines of the gospel. So come out tonight, bring uh, some finger foods to share. We meet at 6, and then along about 6.30, we put the videotape on, and uh, then we have discussion afterwards. So I hope you'll be here. Thank you, and we are dismissed.